When we come to the study of Christology, there are two great divisions in the study of Christology. One is the person of Christ, and the other is the work of Christ. The person of Christ, the work of Christ. One of them is called Christology, and the other is called Soteriology, the study of the person and work of Christ. And you'll find a lot of theology books that will have one volume devoted to the person and work of Christ. Matter of fact, Dr. Walbert put out a book recently, four or five years ago, on the person and work of Jesus Christ, called Jesus Christ Our Lord. But what it was was a book on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, here in John chapter 8, we have both of them. We have 11 great claims regarding Jesus made for his person and for his work. 11 great claims. Now, there may be some others. Uh, I went through this very carefully and picked out eight, 11 tremendous, staggering claims that Jesus made for himself. And I divided them uh, according to whether they relate to his person or whether they relate to his work. He made seven great claims regarding his person. One, he claimed to come down from heaven, divine origin. Two, he claimed to please the Father always, at all times, in everything. Three, he claimed to be sinless. Four, he claimed to be greater than Abraham or any of the prophets. Five, he claimed a unique relationship to the Father. He said, my Father. One thing Jesus never said was our Father. Well, now he said it, but he didn't say it for himself. One thing Jesus never said, along with the others, was our Father. And one prayer Jesus never prayed was the prayer we call sometimes the Lord's Prayer. The one prayer he didn't pray, because he had nothing for which to be forgiven. He claimed a unique relationship to, to God, my Father. Number six, he claimed to be eternal. Number seven is the climax. He claimed to be the I Am of the Old Testament. Seven great claims regarding this person. Now, Four great claims regarding his work. Number one, he claimed to be the light of the world. Number two, he claimed to be the liberator from sin. Number three, he claimed to overcome death. And number four, he claimed to determine destiny. Now, on the basis of those 11 claims, he calls us to do three things. What would those be? Number one, now don't write them down. I want to come to them. We may not get to them until 9.30, but we'll get to them. Number one, he, claim, he challenges us. He calls us to honor himself as men honor God. Number two, he calls us to believe on him and to trust him. And third, he calls us to follow him uh, as a disciple. He calls us to honor him as God to trust him as Savior, and to follow him as Lord. And all three are found in John chapter 8. This is a tremendous chapter, and I felt that we could best approach it and conclude our study by looking at it this way. All right, now we're going to take up these 11 claims. 11 claims. Seven of them relate to his person. Four of them relate to his work. Number one, Jesus Christ claimed to come down from heaven. That is, he claimed to be pre-existent. Now, will you please take your Bible and turn to John chapter 8. 
He made this claim three or four times in John chapter 8. Jesus claimed to come down from heaven. Now, the man says, I've come from Little Rock. That means he was where? No, no, no. If he says, I come from Little Rock, it means heaven. Uh, I don't think Little, Little Rock's a nice city, but it's not heaven. <laughs> if a man says, I came from Little Rock, then where was he? Man said, I came from Nashville. Where is he? Where was he? If Jesus said, I came from heaven, that means he was at one time where? Heaven. All right. So he claimed to come down from heaven. Look at John 8, 14. Jesus answered and said, Though I bear witness of myself, yet my witness is true. For I know from where I came. And I know where I go. But you can't tell from where I came, and you don't know where I am going. Jesus says, I know two things. This is what theologians call the self-consciousness of Jesus. He knew where he came from, and he wasn't talking about his mother's womb. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. I know my origin, and I know my destiny. Look at John chapter 8, verse 23. Once again, he makes the same claim, John 8, 23. He said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You belong, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Now, those are not, he's not simply saying the same thing a second time in different words. He says, you originate from beneath. That is, you, you're, you came from this world. That which is born of the flesh is what? I, you are from beneath. I am from above, heaven. Secondly, you belong to this world. That's why you belong to well. I am not of this world. That means I don't belong to this world. Look at John chapter 8, verse 42. John 8, 42. He makes it a third time. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from who? God. His divine origin. Neither came I of myself, but God sent me. Matter of fact, Jesus is conscious of three things. He's conscious, number one, of his origin. I came from God. I came from above. Secondly, he's conscious of his mission, why he came. He said, at the end of verse 42, God sent me. Number three, he's conscious of his destiny. Chapter 8, verse 14. I know where I and going. So here's the first claim. Jesus claimed to come down from heaven. That is, he claimed pre-existence. Now, eternity, as we shall see in a minute, is more than pre-existence. See, the Jehovah's Witnesses admit that Jesus pre-existed, but they deny his eternity. But <clears throat> at least Jesus claimed pre-existence at this point. He claimed to come down from heaven. He claimed to exist before he came to this earth. Number one claim. Number two, Jesus Christ claimed always to please the Father. John 8, 29. Jesus claimed always to please the Father. Let's read this. John 8, 29. And he that sent me, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do, now what's the next word? Not sometimes. How often? Always, without any exception. I do always those things that please him. Now, no one in the history of the human race has ever done that. 
No one in the history of the human race can stand up and say, I do always the things that please the Father. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. No man can please God. That's why uh, uh, an unconverted man uh, who reads the Bible and who prays and attends church, which are good, he ought to do that. He reads the Bible, attends church, he'll get saved. But when that goes down in God's ledger, it goes down on the liability side, not on the asset side. It's a liability, not an asset. Why? Because it proceeds from a corrupt source. All our adulteries are filthy rags. Is that what it says? All our lying is filthy rags. What does it say? All our righteousness are filthy rags. Why? Because they come from a corrupt source. Even the praying and the Bible reading and the church attendance of an unconverted man is a filthy rag. Now, don't go out here and say, I don't believe in an unconverted man not uh, reading the Bible or going to church. I don't. I believe he ought to read the Bible. I believe he ought to go to church. Because through these, he may very well get saved. But as far as securing any uh, merit before God, it doesn't. It goes down on the liability side rather than the asset because it comes from a corrupt source. Nobody can please God. And even a converted man or woman uh, cannot please God. Always. But Jesus always in everything pleased God. And Jesus said that. Uh, God the Father said that on different occasions. At the beginning of his ministry, in the middle of his ministry, at the end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry of the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the middle, at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And near the end of his ministry, John chapter 12, the voice came from heaven, said the same thing. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's only been one man in human history in whom God has been perfectly satisfied. And that man was Jesus. And Jesus made that claim. He said, I do always, always the things that please my Father. Say, if he didn't, he's a tremendous liar, isn't he? See, once you face these things, you're confronted with the fact that Jesus is tremendously self-deluded, or he's a fantastic liar, or he's what he claimed to be, God's eternal son. I do always the things that please the Father. Third claim, Jesus claimed to be sinless. John 8, 46. John 8, 46. Jesus claimed to be sinless. John 8, 46. Which of you convicteth me of sin? If I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Which of you convicteth me of sin? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody can point a flaw. I read last night, once again, just by sheer action or providence, I have to read Sidney Lanier's poem on the Christian Christ. <laughs> And uh, you probably read it. 
against by saying, you know, in every man there's a mole. That is a spiritual mole, a flaw. But what in this do we find in thee, thou, crystal, Christ? No flaw. Jesus is absolutely sinless. He never committed a sin in deed or in word or in thought. He was absolutely sinless. I wish I had the time to do so. I don't. I'll just mention the five great witnesses to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Five great witnesses. First of all, there's the witness of his enemies. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. The leaders, he said to these men, which of you convinces me of sin? Nobody could point a finger. Uh, the soldiers themselves said there was nothing wrong with Jesus. We have the witness of his enemies. One day, Bob Ingersoll, who used to go up down the country, lectured on the mistakes of Moses and the mistakes of the Bible and so on, was asked one time by a friend, what do you find wrong with Jesus Christ? I know you find a lot wrong with the Bible and a lot wrong with Moses. What do you find wrong with Jesus? Bob Ingersoll replied, I haven't found anything wrong with Jesus. The witness of his enemies. And I want to tell you something. Skeptical scholarship has searched and searched and searched and searched to find something wrong with Jesus. Uh, and the only thing they came up with some, someone like Bertrand Russell was an atheist. The only thing they've ever come up with was, number one, that Jesus didn't speak against the social injustices of his day, which he did. That's about all they find. Matter of fact, I think Bertrand Russell said one time that Jesus was a poor Christian. <laughs> now, you know, uh, what he didn't realize was that was a tacit approval of a Christian. That he was a poor Christian means that being a Christian has a standard. And behind a Christian is Jesus Christ. And even his enemies have witnessed to the uh, pure Secondly, we got the witness of his friends. You know, there's an old French proverb that says, no man is a hero to his own valet. That means, uh, or is it valet? <laughs> I think it's valet. No man is a hero to his own valet. That means that the person who knows us best knows our faults. You know, they soon discover that we've got feet of clay. And, uh, you know, I always, when I, I'm going out to Arizona this summer, when I go out there on the airplane, something always strange happens to me. I get out over New Mexico, and I feel something getting over my head. And I land down in Flagstaff, it's kind of a little halo. <laughs> you know, I'm a visiting preacher. And uh, so I don't stay there very long, you don't discover elsewise. But I always find something else when I start coming back, that halo disappears. In fact, I feel something else coming up. Look like two horns. <laughs> so you know what I mean. Uh, we all got flaws, and those who live closest to us know us at our worst. Now, the disciples of Jesus ate with him. They slept with him, traveled in the same boat. They're with him 
for over two years. If there were anything amiss with Jesus, he would have come up in the writings of these men. What did they find wrong with Jesus? Peter, Peter, two and a half years almost with Jesus. What did Peter say about Jesus? A lamb without blemish, 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. What did John say? John traveled with Jesus for over two years. In him is no sin. What did that sharp eyed and sharp intellect, Apostle Paul Saul, say about Jesus? He who knew no sin. The friends of Jesus, those who are closest to him, unite and affirming the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Then we got the witness of the devil. We got the witness of the devil in John 14, 30. John 14, 30, Jesus says, The prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. Now, if I were saying that, and I were truthful, which I hope I am, I would have to say, the prince of this world, now you know who that is, don't you? The prince of the world is the devil. I would have to say, the prince of this world comes and finds plenty in me and plenty in you. You don't get off the hook. The prince of this world, the devil, comes and finds plenty in me to charge me before God. Jesus said, the prince of this world, the devil, comes and finds nothing. The witness of the devil himself. Fourth, the witness of God the Father. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased, Matthew 4. And John chapter 12. And finally, fifth, the witness of Christ's own conscience. And that's a very powerful argument. The liberals refer to that as the self-consciousness of Jesus, and they give as much uh, weight to that as almost anything else. And you know, um, the closer we come to the Lord, is it not true, the closer we come to the Lord, the more we are conscious of our own sinfulness and our own depravity the more we're conscious that even our praying needs to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And even our preaching needs to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. All that we do is tainted by the sinfulness of sin. The closer we get to God, the more we are aware of our own depravity and sinfulness. Jesus Christ walked on those unclouded heights in the presence of God. What did he say? Which of you convicted me of sin? What did he say? I do always, always the things that please my father. What did he say? The devil comes and finds nothing in me. Here's a man, a good man, a good man, against whom he can bring nothing, and he claims to be sinless. Now could be a good man and be a fantastic liar at the same time. It's contradictory. It's a good man telling the truth. And the claim that he makes is that I'm absolutely sinless. Now, you know why I need to be sinless, don't you? If you were a sinner, he couldn't say that. The Savior of sinners must be God, he must be man, and he must be sinless. He had to meet three requirements. He must be God, he must be a man, a kinsman, 
He must be God so that sacrifice would have infinite value. And he must be kinsman, or else he cannot redeem it. Have you ever studied the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament? How many of you ever studied that? Well, we got about three. That's a beautiful illustration. A preacher is poor that's never preached on that. Beautiful illustration, a kinsman redeemer. God very graciously made a provision for a man, a Jew, an Israelite, who sold himself in slavery to another man. And this is the provision, and this lies behind the book of Luke. A man who sold himself in slavery and wanted to get free, there was a provision by which he could secure his freedom. And it was this. If a kinsman, a nephew, an uncle, a cousin, a second cousin, had the money, was able to do it, wanted to do it, he could buy that man out of his serfdom. He had to pay a price. If it were $1,000 for five years, and there were still three more years left, and he had to pay $600. But that kinsman redeemer had to meet four qualifications. Number one, he had to be a kinsman. He couldn't be a foreigner. He had to be a kinsman. So Jesus became a member of the human race. He was our kinsman. And you remember that Boaz is troubled because there was a closer kinsman to Ruth. And that closer kinsman gave up his right to redeem Ruth so Boaz could step in. He had to be a kinsman. Number two, he couldn't be in the same fit. If he were a slave, he couldn't redeem another man. So Jesus was not in the same fit. He was sinless. Number three, he had to pay, he had to be able to pay the price. I can't pay the price for you. You can't for me. But Jesus, being God, can pay the price. His death is of infinite value because it's the death of an infinite person. Number four, he had to be willing. And Jesus was willing. He loved it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ was absolutely sinless. May I say there's one other witness, a sixth one, that's not in the Bible, and that's the witness to his sinlessness, the witness of personal experience. What is our experience of Jesus? When you read the Bible, he was an unconverted man. What is our reaction and response? The reaction and response of the average man. Here is someone that's unique. Here is someone in whom there is no blemish. Here is someone who's perfect. The witness of personal Jesus was sinless. Number four, fourth claim. Claim first, to come down from heaven. Claim second, to please always the Father. Claim third, to be sinless. Number four, he claimed to be greater than Abraham or the prophet. Now let's look at John 8, 52 to 55. It's there by inference. He claimed to be greater than Abraham or the prophet. John chapter 8. Have you turn with me to John 8? John 8, 52. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophet. And you say, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste the death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? 
and the prophets that are dead, are you greater than them? Whom do you try to palm yourself off? As whom do you try to palm yourself off? Jesus answered, well, I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me. Now, there's the inference. They ask, you claim to be greater than Abraham and all the prophets? Jesus said, no, I don't claim the honor, but my Father does. My Father that does it. And by so doing, he claims to be greater than Abraham or the prophets. Now, greater. Jesus claimed to be greater than all the prophets. Uh, see, the Mohammedans take issue with this there. The Unitarians who meet down Riverside Drive would take issue with us at this point. Jesus is simply one in the line of the prophets. No, no. He's greater, infinitely greater than all the prophets. May I uh, ask you to turn quickly with me to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, as a matter of fact, Jesus makes three claims to being greater. Matthew chapter 12. You might like to circle them in your Bible. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 6. Whom is he greater than in Matthew 12, 6? Greater than the temple. Look at chapter 12, verse 41. Whom is he greater than in Matthew 12, 41? Pardon? Greater than whom? Jonah? You see that? Is that right? Did it come out in your Bible that way? Greater than Jonah. I look at verse 42. He's greater than somebody else. At the end of verse 42, greater than who? Solomon. All right, he's greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, and greater than the temple. What's the connection? What's the connection? Greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. What is the connection? Well, the connection is simply this. The three great offices of the Old Testament were prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. The three great Old Testament offices were prophet, priest, and king. Somebody to reveal God, prophet. Somebody to redeem me from sin, priest. And somebody to rule me for God, king. Prophet, priest, and king. Jonah stands for the prophetic office. Solomon stands for the kingly office. And the temple stands for the priestly office. So here's one in his offices is greater, number one, than Jonah, greater prophet, greater than, secondly, Solomon the king, or greater than the temple, the priest, and third, greater than Solomon the king, okay. three greater. Three, now, you have to take that and study it out. But I'm sure you know that's at the basis of our uh, convictions regarding Jesus. He's prophet, priest, and king. Look over at Revelation chapter 1. That runs all through the New Testament. 
fact, many theologies divide their work on Christology by those three statements. The prophetic office of Jesus, and the priestly office of Jesus, and the kingly office of Jesus. So he's greater than Jonah, and he's greater than the temple, and he's greater than Solomon. Prophetic, prophet, priest, king. Look at Revelation chapter 1. You have the same thing. And this runs through the Bible. And I'm sure you know this. Revelation chapter 1. Verse, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. John, in Revelation 1, 4. John, the seven churches. Grace be unto you from him who is and was and who is to come. That's God the Father. From the seven spirits who are before us, that's God the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, prophet, and the first begotten of the dead, priest, death and resurrection, the first begotten from the dead, his priestly office, and the, and the prince of the kings of the earth. What office is that? Kingly office. Prophet, priest, king. So Jesus is greater than Jonah. That is an infinitely supreme prophetic office. He's greater than the temple. That is infinitely supreme in his priestly office, the only one to offer an effective sacrifice, and an infinitely greater king than any of the kings of the Old Testament. All right, let's go back now to John chapter 8. Jesus claimed to be greater than all the prophets. John chapter 8, number 5, his fifth claim. Jesus claimed, John chapter 8, a unique relationship to his father. Now, there are about three, four, five verses here. Just look at a couple of them here. John chapter 8, verse 19. John 8, 19. Now, what word do you think I'm after in John 8, verse 19? Take a minute to read it. Tell me what word. What one word am I interested in? Comes up twice. Not father, my father. Not our, my father. Then said the unto him, Where's your father? Jesus answered, You neither know, neither know me nor my father. You know me, you should have known my father. Not our, but my father. Jesus claimed and you need relationship to the father. Look at John 8 28. Then Jesus said that when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am, and that I do nothing myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak. Look at John 8, verse 38. John 8, 38. I speak that which I have seen with my Father, and you do that which you have seen with your Father. My, your, not our Father. One thing Jesus didn't say when he included himself, was our Father. Now, somebody's going to say, well, um, what about Matthew chapter 6? Our Father who art in heaven. But Jesus said, when you pray, you say, our Father. Jesus didn't pray that prayer because that prayer says, forgive us our debt. And the word debt is ophelima. And a debt means something that I owe God. And I owe God all my love and all my worship. And I didn't give God, Son of God, in a way that nobody else is the Son of God. Matter of fact, when we come to the study of the New Testament, we find there are at least three sonships. 
Now, I'm only going to touch on this because this is a kind of this is somewhat of a profound subject. There's what I call a creative sonship. Malachi chapter three speaks of that. Says, "Have we not all one Father? All men are sons of God in one sense." by virtue of creation. What is one of the terms that's used of the angels? What are angels called? Now they're called, one of the terms is sons of God. They're called the sons of God. God created them. All men are sons of God in one sense, in the sense that God created them. So Malachi chapter 3 says, have we not one father? God by virtue, Father by virtue of creation. Paul says the same thing in Acts chapter 17. I call that a creative sonship. We are sons, all men are sons, by virtue of creation. That is to say, all men without exception possess the image of God, the natural image of God. Ability to think and to reason and to make moral decisions and to exercise the will, the natural image of God. That's a creative sonship. Second, when I am saved, I'm brought into the family of God, and God becomes my father, and I become an adopted son. And that's an adoptive sonship. And all believers are sons of God in that sense. They're all adopted into the family of God. I'm reborn again and regenerated as a technon, a child. Technon. The verb is picto and means to give birth. That school out in, uh, out on Interstate 40 is called State Tech, Nicolinsky. Picto is to give birth, and technon is a child by birth. We are is a child by adoption. And I'm adopted in the family of God. I'm an adopted and that's an adoptive sonship. But Jesus is a son of God uniquely. And we might call that, if you'll bear with me, a metaphysical sonship. Metaphysical sonship. And by that I simply mean, for lack of a better term, that Jesus Christ is God's son in the sense that he shares equally the attributes and dignity of God the Father. Whatever God the Father possesses, Jesus possesses. What does God the Father possess? Well, we say that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. God is omnipresent, immutable, omnipotent, eternal, Jesus possesses all those attributes. The Bible says, for in him dwells all, how about one-third? All of it. In dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He possesses the Godhood in totality because he possesses, shares equally with the Father and with the Holy Spirit the nature of God and the dignity of God and the honor of God and the activities of God, then he is the son of God. 
in a metaphysical sense. He was a metaphysical son of God. That's a hard word, and probably if we thought a little, we could find a better word than that. See, that always makes people wake up a little. <laughs> I don't know any word. Metaphysical sonship. That means that Jesus shares equally all the attributes, all the works, all the honors of God the Father. And Jesus is conscious of that. Number six, Jesus claimed to be eternal. Look at John 8, 14. John 8, 35 is eternity, but look at John 8, 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Though I bear witness of myself, yet my witness is true. For I know from where I came. Now that's pre-existence. I know where I came from. I know I came down from heaven. That's pre-existence. We believe that Jesus is pre-existent, but we believe that he's more than that. Look at John 8, 35. John 8, 35. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say to you, Whosoever practices sin is a slave of sin, and the slave abides not in the house forever. But the Son, with the capital F, abides, present tense, forever. The Son, with the capital F, abides forever. Eternally exists. Jesus is eternal. Look at John chapter 8. Verse 58. John 8, 58. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I began. What? I am, not I was. Before Abraham began to exist, not I was, not I began, but I am. Jesus could say at Abraham's day, I am. Jesus could say in his day, I am. Jesus could say today, I am. Because uh, uh, when we speak of the eternity of God, we mean, are you listening? We mean that he has no beginning, we get hold of that. And he has no ending, we get hold of that but that he's not subject to succession of events. I'm past. I think of the past, what happened to me. And I think, well, tomorrow I'm going to do so-and-so, the future, but I'm not sure. But what's gone, past, present, and future are all right here. There's no succession of events. That's why God has no need of memory and has no need to learn. God has no need of memory because everything's right here. Things that happened a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, right here with God. He's not subject to the succession of events. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, not I was, not I shall be, but I... Now, when did he say that? When did he say that? Yes. When did he say that? He said it to Abraham. He said it to Moses, he said it in his day, and he says it now. Not I was or I shall be, but I am. Every time in history, you pick it up, Jesus is I am. He's the eternal God. Now, you know why that's important? Because you're going to have some people, I'm doing that to wake you up, 
But you have some people that knock at your door and try to sell you some literature, don't you? And you know what they say? They say that Jesus existed before he came to this earth. Jesus existed before God created this world. Jesus existed before God made the angels. But way back yonder, God made Jesus. So that Jesus pre-exists, but he's not eternal. That's why we say he's the son of God, they tell us, but not God himself. Now, that's an old ancient heresy. That's called Arianism. And when one of them comes to my door, I usually say, oh, you're an Arian, aren't you? <laughs> and he doesn't know whether to thank me or to sock me. See, oh, you're an Arian. You see, uh, and that's because Arians believe that God wills Jesus into existence, that he's not eternal. The early church condemned that as heresy, and well, they might. Jesus not only is preexistent, he is eternal. There never was a time that Jesus was not. There never was a time that Jesus was not. He is eternally the I am. Number seven, number seven, Jesus claimed to be the I am of the Old Testament. John 8:58. Jesus claimed to be the I am of the Old Testament. Here we reach the climax. Look at John 8, verse 58. John 8, 58. Uh, Jesus said, uh, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? Where do you get off saying Abraham saw your day? Jesus said of them, you know, whenever they resist what he says, he gives them something harder to believe. So he said to them, verse 15, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham came into existence, I am. Now I want you to look up here. Think of two things. Of course, there's a contrast between Abraham and Jesus. Before Abraham was means before Abraham came into existence. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. I never came into existence, is what he's saying. See? In addition to other things, he's saying that. How did you get here? You came into existence. Everybody here came into existence. You started somewhere. Adam did. You did. Abraham did. Before Abraham came into existence, I didn't come into existence. I was already there. I am. Now, when Jesus said, I am, and you notice they picked up stones to kill him, they knew exactly what he was claiming. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, uh, uh, God says to Moses, uh, uh, first in Exodus 3, 6, I am the Lord God. And then he, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. Then in verse 14, verse 13, Abraham says, well, uh, if they ask me who sent me, see, God wants to commission Abraham. And Abraham, uh, Moses, 
Moses tried five excuses. I dealt with these in chapel years ago. Five excuses to get out of going. And God knocks them all down. And what it was this, well, I uh, go to them and say, here I come, here I am. <laughs> what will I say? Who will I say sent me? And he said, yes, say that I am sent you. Say that I am, I am that I am sent you. I am. Now, what is the significance of that name? That's one of God's titles. That's one of God's names. I am. Now, you listening? The word I am speaks of eternal self-existence. It speaks of two things. Eternal self-existence. It speaks of self-existence. Now, if something is self-existent, it's got to be eternal. Do you know what I mean by self-existence? That means nobody brought it into existence. If it's self-existent, then nobody brought it into existence. It wasn't born, it wasn't made, wasn't willed into existence. God made the angels. God willed this world into existence. God made you and me through secondary causes, the processes of conception. God made us. God didn't make himself. He is self-existent. Nobody made God. Now, if nobody made God in self-existence, then obviously he is eternal. He never started anyway. And this name, I am, speaks of God's eternal self-existence. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was saying, I, I, Jesus of Nazareth, I am the I am of the Old Testament. The I am that revealed himself to Moses, I am he. I am. Now when you come to the Gospel of John, uh, you find the little word he there. It's in italics. It's not there in the original and it shouldn't be. If you do not believe John 8.24, then don't look there. If you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's not there. If you don't believe, I am. If you don't believe in my deity, you will die in your sins. Once the soldiers came to Jesus, and he said, who, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, the King James says, I am he, but the he is an italic. Jesus said, I am. What did they do? They fell down flat like dead men. They were presence of the eternal God. And here's the climax. Jesus claimed to be the almighty God of the Old Testament. Now they're faced with one of two things. Either is what he's either he is what he either he is what he claimed to be. He's the came down from heaven. He pleases the Father. He's sinless. He's greater than the Father. He's uniquely related to God. He's eternal, and he's the I Am. Therefore, they must bow down and worship him, or he's a blasphemer, worthy of death. 
don't like that first alternative. They're not going to succumb to that. So they pick up stones and kill him. Count him worthy of blasphemy. Seven great plagues. Now, let's look very quickly at the four claims regarding his work. We'll look at these quickly. He makes four, four great claims regarding his work. Number one, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, John 8, 28. Now, we took that up last time, did we not? Well, we did. I know that. I got it down in my notes. See, we took that up last time. Number eight, the first one under his work, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And I said, when you study that, study three things. The claim, the condition, and the consequences. The claim, I am the light of the world. The condition, he that follows me, and the consequences, will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Now, we dealt with that last time. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. That's his work. Number two. He claimed to be the liberator from sin. Look at John 8, 31, 32, and 36. Let's read it quickly. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 36. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, I want to comment briefly on this. Here's the second claim that Jesus made regarding his work. He claimed to be the liberator from sin. Now, the bondage of which Jesus speaks, he says you are slaves. The bondage of which he speaks is not the bondage of ignorance, but the bondage of sin. That's Greek philosophy, that men are inclined or subjected to the bondage of ignorance. But Jesus is not speaking of the bondage of ignorance. He's speaking of the bondage of slavery. Now, that's important because uh, we see it on the masthead of newspapers, sometimes with that lighthouse. The truth shall make you free. And the impression we get, and the poorest place to get theology is a newspaper, magazine. The impression we get is that Truth will liberate us from the bondage of ignorance. The truth shall make you free. But that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. He's not speaking of the bondage of ignorance. He's speaking of the bondage of sin. If you ask a Greek philosopher what is wrong with man, he would say ignorance. You ask the average man on the campus today, university campus, what's wrong with man? Ignorance but not the Hebrew Christian tradition. It would say sin. The bondage of which Jesus is speaking is the bondage of sin. Now he says, if you know the truth, and truth there is not simply propositional, it's personal. It is propositional. But it's also, and more than that, it's personal. I am the way, the truth. So if you know the truth, you need to know Jesus. And if I know the truth personally, then what do we do? Liberate me from the bondage of sin. What is the greatest bondage there is? 
bondage. The bondage of sin. My friend, there are thousands of people tonight that in Memphis, 8.30, right now, who are tyrannized and dominated terribly by the bondage of sin. They cry out. They try drugs. They try sex. They may even try education. They try a thousand and one panaceas. But there's no help. What did Jesus say? If the Son shall make you free from the bondage of sin, you shall be free indeed. And only Jesus can liberate a man from the tyranny of sin. We used to sing an old hymn. There's power, 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 power. Wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Only God can do that and be liberated. Then number 10, he's the light of the world. He's the liberator. Number 10, Jesus claimed to overcome death. Let's read it. John 8, 51. Verily I, verily I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never experience death. And by death there, he means spiritual, eternal death. The death of Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. That is the death which is the equivalent of hell. If a man keep my saying, he shall never experience eternal death. The reason I don't is that Jesus overcame death. And he overcame it by paying the penalty. By paying that penalty, he, 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 he died in my place. He overcame it. Last of all, Jesus claims to determine destiny. This is a phenomenal claim. Last of all, number 11, or number 4 on the board, Jesus claims to determine destiny. Will you look at me in two verses? John 8, 21. John 8, 21. Then said, uh, John 8, 21. Then said Jesus again to them, I go my way, and you'll seek me. So die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. John 8, 24. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. To die in your sins means to die unforgiven of your sins. You will die unforgiven of your sins. For if you do not keep the law, you will die in your sins. Now that what it says? What does it say? You do not what? If you don't join the first church, you'll die in your sin. If you don't read the Bible three chapters a day, you'll die. What does it say? If you don't do one thing, what is it? Believe in me. If you don't believe in me, you'll die. Jesus Christ will determine a man's destiny. What I do with Jesus is going to determine my destiny. Notice, very quickly, three things. There are two destinies, aren't there? There are two destinies. Verse 21 tells us one of them. What's one of them? By implication, verse 21. What's a good one? Look at it, verse 21. Where I go, you can't, if you trust me, you can go there. Where's that, where I go? That's one destiny, heaven. All right, what's the other destiny? Verse 24. If you don't believe in me, you will do what? There are the two destinies. 
either to go to be with Jesus or to die unforgiven of my sins and to perish in hell. Secondly, my destiny is determined by one thing, my relationship to Jesus Christ. John 8, 24. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For, look at this thing. If you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. That's what determines a man's destiny, his relationship to Christ. What shall I do with Jesus? Neutral, I cannot be. Someday my soul be asked me, what will he do with me? Third, my destiny will determine here and now, not in the next life. Look at verse 24. I said therefore unto you <clears throat> that you shall die in your sin. For if you don't believe that I am he, you shall die unforgiven in your sin. When is the man's destiny sealed? When he does what? Die. Says it twice, doesn't he? On the one hand, there's no line across which I can cross in this life beyond which I cannot be saved. I used to quote an old poem. When I started preaching, there's a line beyond which I go, and a man goes beyond it, he can't be saved. And, you know, it was a, if you could quote it well enough and put a little tremble into your voice, it was quite effective, see. The only thing wrong was poor theology. It was a good poem, but poor theology. So you, there's no line beyond which you can cross, beyond which you can't be saved. It is true that a man psychologically can harden his heart to the point which is almost impossible for him to trust Christ. But that isn't the line that God draws. That's the line the man draws. On the other hand, there's no hope beyond death. John King put on the portal, abandon the portals of hell, abandon all hope, ye that enter herein. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the second chance. No, after this, the judgment. My destiny is determined here and now. Now, 11 claims. Let's look at those very quickly. Three conclusions quickly will be three. 11 claims, seven to his person, four to his work. Seven claims he made for his person. Number one, he came down from heaven, pre-existent. Number two, he always, at all times, in everything, pleased the Father. Number three, he was absolutely sinless. Number four, he was greater than all the prophets and priests. Number five, he stood in a unique relationship to God, so he said, my Father. Number six, he's not only pre-existent, number one, but number six, he's eternal. And number seven, he is the I am of the Old Testament. That's his person. Now, four things underscore his work. First of all, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Number two, he's the liberator that frees men from the bondage of sin. Number three, he has overcome death for us. When we trust him, we will not see or experience eternal death. And number four, he determines every man's destiny.
Now, in conclusion, what should I do? Three things. Three things. John chapter 8, verse 49. John 8, 49. John 5, 21 to 24. It's stated in the negative in John 8, 49. What may I ask you is the positive? What is the first response? John 8, 49. Now, you surely can find this. It's stated in the negative. It's what they do do, what they do wrong. What should they do? Honor. That's number one. To honor him as God. That's number one. Now, that won't save a man. A lot of people today in Memphis who honor Jesus as God, but they're lost. Not enough, but it's imperative. Not enough, but it's indispensable. So number one, I have to honor Jesus as God. I have to acknowledge the claims that he made. What is the first response? That I honor Jesus as God. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, if a man doesn't honor me, then he can't honor the Father. So if I don't acknowledge the Trinity, that's why I can't pray with a man who doesn't acknowledge the Trinity. You know why? We don't pray to the same God. I pray, you pray, to the triune God of the Bible. You pray to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The man who denies the deity of Jesus can't pray to the same God to whom you pray. You say that's narrow. No, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if a man doesn't honor me, then he can't honor the Father. He sent me. So it's my first responsibility, honor Jesus by acknowledging his claim. Number two, what is the second responsibility? John 8, 24. John 8, 30. Look at John 8, 24. Tell me what it is from John 8, 24. John 8, 24. Yes, believe him. Trust him as my Savior. Believe him. That's my second responsibility. Honor him as God. Trust him as my Savior. What is the third responsibility? John chapter 8, verse 12. John 8, 12. What is it? Follow him. Follow him as my Lord. Follow him as my Lord. John 8, 12. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So what are the three responsibilities you face tonight? What is the first one? Honor Jesus. Acknowledge these. Honor Jesus as God, God Almighty. What is the second responsibility? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Believe on him as my Savior. What's the third one? Follow him 